because I hadn't trained in that hospital, I'd said to sister that day, what is he doing in the office, putting little black dots on the, on the notes? And she said, that means do not resuscitate. It's a code. We focused on the terminal model and we'd shown it for what it was, which was basically euthanasia. These patients were being written off and were being euthanized or, or murdered. The COVID pathways in the nursing homes and the care homes and the hospices all involved drugs like midazolam. People were given treatments that killed them. People were intubated and ventilated with symptoms that they presumed were COVID that were other conditions. This is the end result of the last 25 years from HIV. One fake epidemic after the next. Hello everyone. That was today's guest, Dr. Kevin Corbett. Dr. Corbett qualified as a nurse in 1986 and worked on Britain's first purpose-built AIDS unit. He went on to do doctoral research into patients' experiences of HIV tests. This research led him to reject the paradigm that AIDS was caused by HIV and to become cynical of the viral origins of diseases in general. In this interview, I asked Dr. Corbett about the parallels between the HIV and COVID eras, and in particular, what, if not a virus, caused all the excess mortality we've seen. I started out by asking Dr. Corbett about his initial training as an artist and subsequent journey into nursing. I did have a training in art prior to entering healthcare and um, I had an undergraduate and postgraduate training. And I did at that point sort of uh, think about, you know, my direction of travel was into the arts and into practicing as an artist. And a lot of my work during those years was concerned with how you see things and how you see space how you see through space and how you see objects three-dimensional objects and relief surfaces two-dimensional surfaces soon after i left postgraduate course i i didn't really attend to having an art career i worked in the arts galleries and bookshops for a while and um, then decided to move into to nursing because uh I couldn't really see a way forward as an artist. There was no structured career route. I wasn't interested in, in forging one. And um, I drew a blank, really. And then I defaulted to um, the career that my parents had chosen. And my parents had worked in nursing since the 1940s. They'd come over from Ireland as immigrants. My father trained as a psychiatric and general nurse and served my mother from Ireland as well. And my father was, in the 1960s, was a nursing director. He was very senior. He was head nurse in, in asylums. We lived in psychiatric institutions as children. We lived in hospital houses. That was the whole context I was brought up with, with mental illness all around me. Uh, we would go on the wards with my father. We would, uh, at Christmas, we'd go around all the wards. We'd meet all the staff and patients. Uh, we had these hospital houses with huge gardens. This was the Victorian asylums we lived in. And they had big gardens, these houses. The patients were our gardeners. They came and did work in the, 
<clears throat> for us in the, in the house or in the garden. So by the age of eight or nine or 10, I knew what schizophrenia was. I knew what manic depression was. These are real people to us. They were John or Mary who had to have, have to have, you know, by, by whatever slight of fate have, have had to experience whatever they experienced in their lives and have been incarcerated in mental hospitals. But by the 1960s, these mental hospitals were opening up. They're opening their doors, they're unlocking their wards. And my father was part of this liberalization movement. And he worked with a very famous psychiatrist called Russell Barton, who wrote a very famous book called Institutional Neurosis. And Russell Barton was one of these liberal psychiatrists in the 1960s in the UK that was unlocking the mental hospitals, moving people out into community homes, was transforming these hospitals or trying to transform them into more therapeutic environments, halfway houses really, places where people could come in if they needed to be admitted, but they could also move out of. And so this was, this was quite an important um, background to me because uh, that was always part of our lives. My mother worked as a, a psychiatric nurse, but she mainly worked as a general nurse and she became a sister in the local A&E department. I'm talking about Colchester in Essex. My father ran several hospital in Essex, which is a big mental hospital at the time. And my mother was an A&E sister and a night superintendent from hospital. So, you know, my background at home was this sort of discourse, the mental hospital, the development in mental health, the, the liberalization, and then from my mother, you know, the developments in nursing and medicine in, in an A&E, in an A&E department in, in the hospitals, the development of intensive care units, the development of um, better treatments, um, and I had this discourse behind me all the time as a as a school student, you know, that I fell back on it. it you know, it shapes your shapes your nature really, your, what your parents do and what their ethos is and their values. And um, my father was always trying to do the right thing. My mother and father were always trying to do the right things at work. And I would hear this at home over breakfast or dinner. My, fa my father would be talking about all the politics in the asylum and how they're trying to get better resources, how they're trying to get people discharged into the community. My father was bringing firms into the asylum, companies, to try and recruit uh, workers to try and recruit patients so they could move out into the community. So they're setting up industrial units to skill up patients with certain machine tool skills, so then they could go and work in the companies in Colchester or the surrounds. And my mother was talking about all sorts of developments in nursing and medicine, uh, the introduction of intravenous therapies, defibrillation, intensive care units, all these things were coming in in the 60s. And um, so it was very rich, that healthcare background I came from. And uh, the idea was, of course, I'd become a doctor. This is what I think was at the back of my parents' minds. They hoped I would become a doctor and not a nurse like them. Um, and I'm not sure if that was because they saw nursing as more secondary to medicine. 
But what their background and what their discourse showed me was actually how powerful nursing was, really more powerful than even medicine. And I went into general nursing and trained as a general nurse, and I loved it. And what I loved about it is really you're, you're dealing with diagnostics wherever you are in healthcare. What is it that you're looking at? What causes it? And how should you deal with it? And that's diagnostics. That's the differential diagnostic. And that's what the TV program House is all about. The successful TV series mm -hmm. with um, that British actor. I can't remember his name. Hugh Laurie. Isn't Hugh Laurie. And it's all about the differential diagnostic. The differential, he calls it interviewing the patient, getting the history, going to the home, looking at the exposures, the environmental exposures. Tests and technology are only a little part of this, if any of it. It's all about history taking. It's all about working out from what you're told and what you observe. And that's what I loved about nursing. And I was one of those nurses that was always, you know, there with the patient and um very interested in what you're observing and the signs the physiology the psychology and you know i became a charge nurse quite quickly uh, i worked in acute medical environments acute medical wards and intensive care a little bit and um what we called high dependency work where people came out of theater or intensive care but they were in a high dependency environment for a couple of days on monitors and it, and and this is the sort of area of nursing that i was very interested in the physiology and the psychology and the 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 sociology and how it all fits together and as a nurse i think i developed what patricia benner talked about she's a nurse nursing professor in america did a lot the research on how nurses became competent and became intuitively competent it, through their practice and their observation and their training and their education and um, how nurses develop an intuition about a patient and how their physiology is and where they're going and you know I could uh, I, I mean I would have these wards Richard that were full of cardiac patients and I'd have to, you know, I'd have 10 wards at night as a night charge nurse, full of cardiac patients and stroke patients and lots of stuff to, to manage. And, and, and always looking at the physiology and looking at the levels, you know, and our, our patients, what's the patient's biochemistry like? It's very important in nursing. And um, it's not everything, but it's very important. And, um, you know, with some of these cardiac patients that, things would get missed, you know, and their potassium levels would be low and their cardiac status would be, uh, you know, that their, their myocardium would be problematic if their potassium was low. And you would be always looking at the levels of these patients and making sure that things were monitored and that they were stable. And, um, and you could see patients going into unstable states ahead of that actually happening you developed a second site for this if you're managing the unit properly you know and um i was always trying to prevent 
rather than be in a situation of reacting. So preventing a cardiac arrest rather than being in a cardiac arrest is important, especially at night. And um, always, always there trying to be ahead of the curve and to, to, to facilitate the best, really, and doing the right thing. This was the whole area that I worked in, really. So maybe I'm going off at one here, yeah, but no, it's all, it's all very interesting. I think where we're heading really is you do nursing around the AIDS yeah. crisis of the eighties, and that has an effect on your, I think, a quite radical effect on your perception. Then maybe in the way of seeing the way end of life mm. pathways are used, and also in coming to question some of the real foundations of what's mm. going on with viruses. So if I can... Yeah, head that's, that's heading that. Well, 1986, I just qualified. I remember coming to work one day and I was in charge of the ward. There was a man on the ward in his early 30s who was homosexual and he'd been admitted for help with his bladder problem. He had a bladder problem. He had a... a uh, malfunctioning bladder since birth urinary bladder so he needed to have a catheter inserted very regularly to help him void his urine and he kept getting infections because he didn't know how to do it properly i should say he kept getting treated for infections i wouldn't use that terminology now because uh, i'm always question I, I question whether these things are infections but but basically he had problems with his bladder function and he needed help teaching him how to insert the catheter, what we call catheterization. And he was, homos he was gay and he was just admitted to having an HIV test and he was waiting for the result. And none of the nurses would go near him. And I just, of course, it was all in the media at the time. It was in the, the Daily Mail, AIDS was everywhere. The, it was just the hype, the hysteria was even worse than COVID had been. It was absolutely, and it was absolutely difficult as a gay man, you know, because you you always felt that society was saying you were to blame for this. And of course, all the staff knew that I was gay. This wasn't, had never been a problem, but they wouldn't deal with this patient who needed proper nursing care and needed proper attention. So I had to take control of this and had to sort of speak to the staff about this. They just can't ostracize somebody who's come in for treatment and, um, you know, you can't behave like this. And uh, there was a very evangelical Christian nurse on the staff who was talking in very pejorative language about God's wrath and um, I'm not going near him. He could give it to all of us and all of this nonsense. And I remember having to cut through all this very quickly you know because you've got a you've got a ward to run you've got people to look after and you, I, I just took her in the office and i just said you cannot come to work with all this baggage about your own you know i'm a christian i said you know you can't judge people like this and you've got to go down there and you've got to do what he needs to have done you've got to teach him how to use the catheter can, can i interject with a question there kevin was that because i was very young at the time so i remember this whole thing that AIDS is going to take over the world and I remember episodes on EastEnders where one of the characters got AIDS and they were they were trying to I think do an educational mm. thing where you can't use can you use the same form mm. as somebody because oh, it was all, all it was all air, like but, this I mean it, it was because he wasn't positive at that time this patient he was waiting for the result 
that in their minds didn't matter. You know, he was one of them and he had it. And the hysteria is just incredible. And I could feel this on my ward, feel it. You could feel it as you talk to these staff, you know, and I thought, we're not, I'm not having this. I'm going to run this today and I'm going to make sure that man gets his care and she's going to do it. And I'm going to ensure that she does it. And I said to her, you're going to go down there with me. I'm going to teach you how to do it with him, catheterization. And then you're going to do it on your own with him. And you're going to come back and tell me about it. And I don't want to hear anything about God or judgment or you're going to get it off him. Because I said, unless you sleep with that man, unless you expose your bodily fluids, this is how I thought at the time. I thought it was an infection. You're not going to get it. I said, are you going to have sex with him? Do you have sex with your patients? And she just laughed at me. Of course I don't. I'm married, she said. And I said, well, then get down there and do what you need to do. I said, you're, you're a professional nurse. You're a state-enrolled nurse. You're on the register. Get down and do it. And stop all this nonsense. So she sort of had to do it. You know, it was quite a... I got it in the neck, of course, later from them, you know. And, and um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think this is crazy, you know. And... I remember I was a staff nurse and when the sister came on later on that day, I took her to one side and I said, you know, this is crazy. You know, we've got to do something about the staff here. We, we can't have this. You know, you can't have people just being left and then being, you know, nurses walking away from patients, you know. And she said, well, it's all over the hospital. There was a patient on the other ward, she said, and nobody go in the room. The food was left outside. And I don't want that on my ward. So, so, so we started looking at this, you know, and I started getting interested in the whole HIV thing, which I'd put it away from me uh, because being gay, I think I didn't want to in touch with it. I didn't want to engage with it. I found it too difficult. But because it started happening to me at work, all this, I started getting interested in it. And I think um, then a few months later, before I left that job, we got our first HIV patient. Somebody had had the test. And a member of the casualty department phoned the ward up and I answered the phone and I was taking the shift that day. And they said, you've got an HIV positive patient coming to your ward, blah, blah, blah. Make sure you've got gowns and gloves and all this infection control stuff. And I didn't bother with all that. I went to the head of the ward. The patient came on the ward on a trolley. The staff that came with him from A&E were wearing um, these, they were like hazmat suits in those days and goggles and visors. <laughs> I was standing there in my nurse's uniform with nothing on, no gloves or anything. And um, they were in all this paraphernalia trying to tell me all the details of the patient. And this poor man was on the trolley, emaciated looking and not very well. And I just cut through all the stuff we brought him on the ward and just treated him like anybody else and all that nonsense just disappeared you know and by that time the staff all knew about bodily fluids and they just treated the patients exactly the same there's no difference on our ward and it just showed what a difference we could make to the whole thing that this hysteria just went ahead of everything you know we just laughed about it you know, hazmat suits and things like this patient had come from Mars or something. It was just so, I, it wasn't, well, it was funny 
but it wasn't funny. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. And I remember um, talking to one of the senior registrars about maybe going for a job on one of these new units that were starting. And she started talking to me about, oh, oh, they must have laminar flow in those wards to, you know, filter the air because, you know, it could be airborne, she said. And I, <laughs> I said to her, you're not serious. Do you seriously believe that HIV is airborne spread? And she started talking to me, well, well they don't really know. And, you know, you never know. And, and I said, well, no, no, no. I've read books on this. I said, no, this isn't correct. You're not right there. And, um, but do you see what I'm talking about here? The, the imaginary, the clinical imaginary, their imagination, the doctors and nurses, they imagine based on this concept of infection, they were imagining this sort of science fiction of HIV being something airborne. And the models that were coming out yes. on the TV of these, these spherical things with knobs on, you know, the virus model, all models. Nobody'd seen that. Of course, at the time, I didn't realize those are models. They're not real. Nobody's actually envisaged the whole any, the thing anyway, even on electron microscopy. It doesn't look like that. It's, this was an abstraction. But I thought, you know, it's an infection and it's something new. And I was drawn to it, to work in it. And I applied to work on the first commissioned unit in London at the Middlesex Hospital. I applied in 1986 and I got onto that unit. It was a very hard interview because you're interviewed by a psychologist. It's seen as stressful. Of course, it was stressful. But my experience of HIV working on that ward was the model was wrong. I don't mean the science model. I accepted at that time there was an infection and there was this virus, etc. I wasn't questioning that. But the treatment model to me, the modality was wrong. It's terminal. And I couldn't work this out. Richard, because this is a new area, so-called new disease. Why were they all working? All the doctors are working this model of the virus inserting itself into your genome. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a matter of time before you're, you're dead. That was the model they're working with. You can only do so much mm. for these patients and then that's no more. Uh, what, we didn't work with concepts like terminal care pathway. We didn't have pathways in those days. We didn't even talk like that. But Palliative care, terminal and palliative care was all that was on offer, really. They would do acute treatment. They would treat with antibiotics. They'd maybe even give CPAP. They were loath to intubate patients and put them in intensive care unit. They just wouldn't do that. And that was the, for me, that was wrong. I couldn't see the science of that at all because I kept thinking and saying, this is a new disease aren't you going to try this? Or couldn't you try that? Give them a trial on in, in ventilation and see if they survive. No, 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 we're not doing that. You've got a problem with this because you can't see it's palliative, probably due to the fact you're gay and you have identified the patients, blah, blah, blah. So that was me written off as a difficult staff nurse who won't accept the model. And I was constantly, constantly thinking, this isn't right ethically, morally. And I go to work every day on that unit. It felt like a battle zone. And it was like, who wants to be resuscitated today? You know, And um, all these patients, without them knowing very often, 
The doctors would decide they were not for resuscitation, just like what's happened in the last couple of years. But this has gone right through medicine in the last 40 years, since the 1980s. And people used to have decisions made about them without them knowing. It was classic, classic expert system, judging and deciding what it's going to do for you without you being part of it, without your participation. And would this be substantial enough to be inflating the death statistics around AIDS of people who would have been resuscitated had they not had the HIV diagnosis exactly and, and not being exactly you had people coming in I mean you know it was in retrospect I could see what we were doing on that unit but at the time even then with not knowing what I knew then about the science of HIV and the tests and the virus so-called it's never been isolated or purified I thought the science must be right and never questioned that in the 1980s but the treatment modality was all wrong to me and i'd resuscitate patients you know and i would um put a call out for the cardiac arrest team i'd do cpr and you know they'd come running the anesthetists come running and they'd look at what i was doing and they'd think twice about doing anything in 1987 there was one particular patient who came in, I'll uh, keep it anonymous, and male, gay, partner with him, not doing well, chest infection, diagnosed with pneumocystis, and so they gave him the standard treatment, which is cotrimoxazole, septrin, IV. Had two weeks of that, and he wasn't improving. His oxygen saturations were going down, getting worse. And they basically decided, well, that's it, really. Put him on CPAP continuous positive airways pressure, mask, didn't really improve his PO2, and that was it. So diamorphine infusion. I remember the ward round that day, I was, I was taking the, the shift, and I was left with this prescription of diamorphine to give to this man with his partner sat there. Patient had a respiratory rate of about 60 a minute. Diamorphine infusion. Well, it wasn't infusion. The professor of medicine had written him up for a stat dose of diamorphine, 15 milligrams intravenous stat dose, which is basically like killing somebody. And um, I said, I'm not going to give this. And of course, all the doctors just walked away from me. And it was so funny in retrospect, but it wasn't funny at the time. It was really difficult. And um, the senior registrar came back and he said, you've got to give it. They prescribed it and I said, no, I'm not giving it. I said, you can give it. Here we are. You're a registered physician. You have the keys to the control drug cupboard. You can go and get the diamorphine and give it to him. He walked away from me. And I just thought, well, that says it all. He doesn't want to be the one to give him the dose. Mm. And neither are we. And so what we did was um, we did give him some diamorphine, gave him a titrated dose of 2.5 milligrams subcutaneously over half an hour. I sat there and I infused it in a, through a small needle myself very very for half an hour his respiratory rate went right down to about just below 10 from six over 60 and his breathing became better became deeper and he survived overnight but overnight we had night nurses on who were agency nurses that didn't know any of the patients and that prescription 15 milligrams iv was still on the sheet still on the drug sheet and the night sister, I had the night sister down who looked after the ward overnight. And I said, I'm worried about this dose. 
being on the the, the prescription sheet because the night nurses would just give it to him and they could just knock him off. And she said, well, I can't do anything about it. I could maybe get them doctors to review it later. And I said, well, I've been paging them all afternoon. They won't come near me because of what happened early in the day. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I leaned over. She had all her biros in her left breast pocket. And I picked her red biro out. And I put uh, two lines across the prescription, two big red lines right through the prescription. And in those days, a red line through a medical prescription for a drug meant don't give it. Yeah, it's like a doctor signing, the doctor crossing it off. And I put mm -hmm. my name over the, in the signature box, do not give in red letters, crossed it through. And I knew that that would get me into trouble. I came on the following morning at seven, patient went straight to the patient's bed he was alive doing quite well not bad no worse slightly improved the night staff said and i went in took the report off the night staff senior nurse came down to the ward about eight o'clock and said the matron wants to see you this morning uh, i had to go down and disciplinary you know sort of situation and not really disciplinary formally but there's a bit of a row about this prescription being crossed out nurses don't do that kevin uh nurses at the middlesex hospital don't do that and um you're not to do that again and i said well i can't guarantee that because we're in this situation where if the doctors prescribe deathly doses then we've got to cross them out so she said well i've had a word with the consultant who's very angry about what you've done and um if this happens again you'll be you know formally warned i said well let's bring it on bring it on i'd be very happy to get the nursing council in here and we'll see what's going to happen because it didn't happen i wasn't formally disciplined you know it's all handled you know in a very british way do you know what i mean richard you know these teaching hospitals were run by matrons mm -hmm. they were nice ladies yeah they were nice girls that they employed. I was this man from a district general hospital, didn't fit into the, the, the sort of middle-class ethos of this Middlesex hospital. And I probably was a bit brash. I was probably a bit forward, but patients survived. By the end of the following week, patients improving, even sitting up and getting out of bed. By week three, staff were really aware of what i'd done or what we'd done it wasn't just me on that shift there was the other nurses with me as well and we were saying staff were then saying how come this patient didn't get into intensive care how come he wasn't ventilated why hadn't we done that and the doctors had no argument for it and you know the doctors the senior registrar at the time who's now a professor of hiv medicine would just walk away from me and he was so angry with me and basically what we'd done was to turn on the model we we focused on the terminal model and we'd shown it for what it was which was basically euthanasia and from that moment on on that unit things did change a bit and intensive care was used later on that year and people were ventilated i'm not saying that what we did was totally 
um, the cause of that change of direction. But I think it helped with that change of direction because it showed the doctors that we weren't just following their orders and that we were thinking independently. And that the model was wrong, that these patients were being written off and were being euthanized or, or murdered, you could argue, with diamorphine. Doing, they thought they were doing the right thing by not offering intensive care, but actually they're doing the wrong thing. So everything about someone with an HIV-positive label was being interpreted through the lens of them being HIV-positive. Exactly. And this was cultural in, in British hospitals at that time. It just, there was no top-down. Oh, there's no top-down. And, and the registrar, senior registrar, would come in on a Sunday. He'd go through all the medical notes and he'd just draw little black spots on the notes. I remember, because I hadn't trained in that hospital, I'd said to sister that day, what is, what is he doing in the office with putting little black dots on the, on the notes? And she said, that means do not resuscitate. It's a code. And I remember saying to her, did the patients know that? That they're being black spotted. They called it black spotting. Yeah. Oh, he's oh, black no. spotted. You don't need to call the rest team. You know, that's what it meant. And I said, did the, yeah, did the patients know that? And the ward sister said to me at the time, oh, of course they do. He's discussed it with them all. I said, okay then, right, I'm gonna go to patient X in that bed and talk to him about it. Oh, don't do that. Don't. So I remember saying to this guy, this patient that day, if you had a cardiac arrest today, what would you like me to do, John? And he said, I'd like you to save me. <laughs> and I went back to the ward sister and I said, you heard what I just said and you heard his response. And she just said to me, don't do this. And I said, go to his notes. And he's got a black spot on the notes. So that just disproves what you've told me about them being informed about this decision. So this, is, this happened a lot. It wasn't just HIV, Richard. This was 1980s medical expertise guiding everything, you know, medical decision making, uh, nurses following like sheep, you know. Well, we weren't all like sheep, we weren't all like sheep, you know, a lot of nurses in those days, the nurses at the Middlesex were really nice, there were, a lot of them were really well qualified, uh, bright, intellectual, intelligent, and they were questioning medical practice, they were countering it, they were contesting it, and um, I was no different, you know, and maybe not as middle class as those girls, uh, but there was a big bedrock there that I could um, incendia, you know, that I was like incendiary. My um, approach was probably quite radical in that I wasn't operating. I was operating outside of the norm for an RN at the time, yeah? Nurses don't mm -hmm. cross through prescriptions. Well, they do actually. And I've known that since, especially for somebody's life's at stake and the doctor's made a, a wrong decision, yeah? You're totally within your code of conduct to act in the patient's best interests, yeah? And that's what I was doing. And that's how I would, and that's why they didn't discipline me, Richard, because they knew that I would right. bring in the nursing council and, I, uh, and my ethical and moral approach and scientific approach to it would outweigh the medical um, objection to me. 
And the senior registrar in that unit would always say to me, Kevin, you don't understand. We can't intubate these people and ventilate them. It won't work with pneumocystis. Here's the study from the New England Journal of Medicine that shows I'm right. Read it. So I remember I got it and I read it and I said, Rob, this study is 200 plus patients, pool data. It's not a trial. And he looked at me and he said, what do you know about trials? And I said, the methodology of this study is like you've just looked at 200 cases willy-nilly and you presented it like this. It doesn't mean anything. It's not a good study. It's not a good quality study. So he said, how do you know about studies? And I said, well, I'm going to do an MSc at King's College London this year. And he said, he just said, oh, well, you know, nurses getting degrees, you know, in my view, I think nurses are better off making the beds and making the patients look tidy and keeping them clean. And I said, well, nurses are going to do science just like you. Nurses are going to be as qualified as you in nursing. And there's nothing you can do about it. And this is the debate you see, you know, so I went off part-time. I did an MSc in, from 87 to 89 at University of London, King's College. It was Chelsea and it became King's College. And I learned about research designs. I learned about how to do a trial. I learned what an experiment was. And I did an experiment for my MSc. I did an experiment. I did a, a quantitative experiment. It was all... Statistics, you know, um, you know, this is just something you can learn. You know, it's what you do with it that's important. And what the doctors were doing there with HIV/AIDS, they'd agreed it was a terminal condition. We can only do X. We can't do two X. We're going to stop here and go no further. To me, that didn't make sense. If you got a new disease, a new disease, that's what we were told it was, then you do anything to save patients because you might find a new treatment that works. You might find something that helps and your patients live longer. Why not? Why not? Isn't that what everybody wants? These were young people in their 20s and 30s. These weren't people in their 90s and 100s at the end of their lives. These are young people. They wanted everything done. But medicine behind the scenes was doing very little. It was saying they'd do everything, but they wouldn't. And then, you know, the big fanfare drug AZT came out, which was just a basically repurposed failed drug in cancer. They took off the shelf, dusted it down, tarted it up and marketed it to AIDS patients and said there's a limited supply. So everybody wanted it, you know, this is, this is exactly the model that they use. And so by that time in the late eighties, I'd worked in, I went back into general medicine after uh, my MSc. And then I went back into HIV medicine by the early 1990s. And I worked at, at St. Mary's hospital in Paddington, two big HIV wards, huge outpatient HIV service massive amounts of experience I got. But I also had the general medical experience at St. Mary's because I looked after the medical unit at night. And that was, I think I had something like 12 wards at night. So I had all the specialties, medical specialties, as well as general medical and the, and the HIV and oncology. I had neurology. I had a huge number of medical specialties there. And it was such brilliant experience working in those wards. And again, you see, this is, coming back to 
your scientific training. By that time, I had an MSc. I knew about research. I'd done research a little bit, not a lot. But I knew how to interpret it. I knew how to look at research in different different ways. I knew that your findings could be looked at from lots of different perspectives. And the findings are only ever as good as the way you did it, your methodology, the methods you used. And this is the key thing with any piece of research. It's how well it's done that's important. It's how it's done. So the fact you've got a research study and you've got a set of findings, really, that's not the whole story. It's about half of it, really. The quality of that research is important. How the methods, what methods were used, how the research was organized. Did you notice that with the research into AZT? Because I believe the, the story is that there were blood transfusions were used to keep people on AZ, well, AZT. Well, with alive. AZT, they did do a trial. They did the Concord study. I mean, and, you know, it was blinded and all the rest of it. But there were problems with that study because John Lawrenson and um, other... John Lawrenson was a scientist, actually, in the States, also a gay man, an activist, and um, had uncovered that you know, there's a lot of unblinding in the AZT trials. Patients found out what arm of the trial they were on. And so it undid the study, the robustness of the study. But the fact is that AZT is just one of these drugs that destroys your bone marrow. And we, they were prescribing high doses of this, 1500 milligrams, you know, days, huge. And... Um, Patients within weeks would develop neutropenia. They develop uh, opportunistic infections. Now, the doctors are all saying, oh, it's due to AIDS and HIV. But actually, <laughs> you know, the hematologists are saying, well, actually, it's the effect of the drug on the bone marrow. You know, hematologists were interesting because, um, well, the whole AIDS field was interesting in the 80s, Richard, because up till the mid 80s, 84, 85, the immunologists led the medical teams. And then when they thought it was viral and they had the HIV test and they called it HIV disease, the virologists started popping up, taking control. And the immunologists were backgrounded and sidelined. And again, that reflected the treatment modality. They thought they were treating a viral disease, so the virologists became more important. And all the virologists were interested in were the CD4 counts, the viral load counts, and the antibody test result. And everything else paled into insignificance, you know. So uh, you get these crazy situations where there's very little viral load, it's almost zero, T cells were high, and the, and the virologists are saying, oh, patient's doing really well. And I'd be looking at these patients and outpatients as a nurse specialist saying, well, you should come and have a look at the patient. Never mind about being on the phone and looking at the blood results on the, on the uh, computer. Come down and see the patient with me and examine him. And you'll find that he's got problems with his GI tract and he's got other uh, neurological problems. All you're looking at are these markers as a virologist, you know. So did it become obvious to you just working with patients that AZT was having this deleterious effect? Or were you aware of people like Peter Duisberg uh, questioning the whole paradigm uh, in the 80s and 90s? 
Well, in the 80s, by the early 90s, I was a nurse specialist. Yes, I'd heard of Peter Duesberg. Uh, he was vilified. I'd heard of the contest of the model, you know, that there's this virus that causes AIDS. I hadn't heard of the Perth group by then that were questioning whether the virus had actually been isolated, whether it was materially present or not. And um, by the early 90s, I was a nurse specialist. But again, my experience was about questioning the palliative model, the terminal model. But on my caseload, as I was a community nurse specialist, I had lots of patients referred to me who were just seropositive, really. Because the, the idea was they're going to get ill at some point in the future. You know, it was a slippery slope model. Do you know what I mean? They start off mm -hmm. positive with no symptoms. But Kevin, give them a few years, they're going to be dying. Because they're all going to die anyway. Yeah, That was the model. So get them in the healthcare system. Get them in the pipeline. Uh, so people get a positive diagnosis in the 80s. They'd be told they'd be dead in 18 months. You know, They were invalided out of their jobs. They're given social welfare benefits. And they're told to get their wills in order, get their lives in order and prepare for death. That's what happened in the mid 80s. And that, that on one level seemed okay. But on another level to me, it was bizarre because if this is a new condition, don't you want to be the doctor that treats it successfully and helps the patient live longer? Yeah, I couldn't understand the terminal approach. And it was only later in the 90s that I worked this out. And it was to do this model of something called HIV that inserts itself into your genome and destroys your immune system. That was the, the model they were working to. And so really... The medical care was perfunctory. It was a sort of veneer. They really thought you're going to die anyway, no matter what they did. So there isn't much point doing too much. That was that was absolutely behind the whole treatment modality, right up until the antiretrovirals came on the scene. And then these drugs were hailed in the early 90s as saviors. These were the drugs that were going to make it a chronic manageable condition. And the, the model was diabetes. You know, they kept saying, it's going to be like diabetes. People can take drugs, stave off death, and they'll live normal lives. And that's the model you've got now. That's the model they're using now. But by the early 90s, I was a nurse specialist, had a lot of positives, asymptomatics, people that were invalided out of their jobs for years. They'd left their employment. They were on state benefits and they were healthy and but they were hiv positive or they had some minor skin problem or something they didn't have kaposi sarcoma they never had pneumocystis pneumonia they didn't have any cancers or anything and i remember one patient saying this to me it was probably 1992 this is what made me want to do a phd to research this he tested positive. He said, I was one of the first patients in 1984 to have the HIV test. I was told I'd be dead in a year. And it's now eight years later, he said. So I lost my job. I, they, they gave me invalid, um, medical benefits. I was invalided out of my job, as you know, we called in, 
people were medical invalids in those days in the 80s. You know, that's the term. And it's not a very nice term. But they, they were given social welfare provision. So they didn't have to work. They were told to prepare for death. They said, it's eight years later. <laughs> uh, I'm in my late 30s. I gave up a job in teaching. I've never worked since. And I've never been ill. That's what he said to me. I've never been ill. And what are they going to do with people like me? He said, I'm nearly 40 and I want to do something, you know. And I, I didn't know much about sociology in those days. I mean, I studied a bit on my own. I, I, but I remember thinking, well, this is very much like Talcott Parsons, the sick role, very famous sociologist who researched something called the sick role, was... Well, society gives you a diagnosis. Medicine gives you a diagnosis and then it sick, sick rolls you into that. It, it institutionalizes you within that diagnosis. And this is what was the common issue at my background and my parents, especially my father's work, where people were given mental illness diagnosis in the 1950s and 60s. And they were put in mental asylums and were funded to stay in those asylums, you know. Do you know what I mean? The system kept them, paid for them to be in that situation at great cost, receiving those treatments for what reason? And it was exactly the same, I thought, in the early 90s. This is the commonality with what I was seeing. And I, I was thinking, oh, I'd like to do a study on people's experiences of testing and CD4 counting and viral load testing. Viral load was just coming in in those days. And the PCR was just coming in. And it was the first, AIDS, HIV was the first medical diagnosis that the PCR was used in clinical services for, yeah? It was used to stage the disease. It's used to, to this is what the, the, the mantra we were given, the lie that we were given was the PCR calculated the viral load, the amount of circulating HIV. That was the, the lie that we were, we were given to swallow and um, that's the that's what they're working with today and the, by the early 90s then so I was interested in doing my own research in this and um, so I was a nurse specialist with a big caseload in central London and I took myself off to do by the 19 by 1995 I'd written my proposal and I was looking at who'd supervise it and um off i went i found a, a um a well-known sociologist not in medicine and i registered in social sciences not in nursing not in any other discipline i registered in social sciences because i thought it'd be more neutral to do that if i went into the nursing it would be more guided by the biomedical model if, if that makes sense to you mm -hmm. and so i i I did did my own research in this and I, I I went through NHS ethics committees. I went through two ethics committees with my proposal and I recruited patients in the UK, recruited just under 30 to my sample and investigated their experiences of testing HIV positive, CD4 counting and viral load. And th that was my thesis. Those are the three tests that were the structure of my thesis. And um, I started off looking at empowerment as a concept, people's empowerment in, in AIDS and how they gained knowledge and understood what was happening. 
And when I started my PhD, I was very aware by that time of Duisburg and I was become aware of this fringe area where people were questioning the whole thing. And I was drawn to this. I don't know why I was drawn to it, I think, because it was part of the empowerment to me, you know, people empowering themselves in understanding the science. Does that make sense? Mm hmm. And I didn't know much about the field of sociology, where my thesis would fit. And eventually I realized it fitted into science and technology studies, this sort of area of sociology of science. And um, I went then, it's the first time I was doing my PhD, I think it was 96, 97. I negotiated entry into labs, into clinical laboratories where they did the tests. And I looked at how they did the HIV antibody test and the PCR test. And um, that was the first time that you know, I'd been working in this field for 10 years. It's the first time I went into the labs to see how it actually works. And, you know, it was quite interesting doing that because a lot of doctors and nurses work in their whole lives in the in health services. They never go into the lab to see how the tests work. They get the test results over the phone or on the computer. In those days, we didn't have computerized, uh, you know, monitoring of, of lab results. We got printouts or we got told over the phone the results. And um, I went into the labs and I started looking at, for example, the HIV antibody test. And I looked at the PHLS app, the Public Health Laboratory Service algorithm for testing. And I looked at how they did the test and I realized that a lot of it is based on perception of risk group. So the, 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 blood the blood sample comes to the lab with a label attached to it. And the label has the risk group of the patient. And when they run the, the, the blood through the test in the lab, they can't interpret the result unless they know the risk group of the patient. I remember one technician going through this with me and I just couldn't get it. I said, surely, you know, well, what do you do? It's a, sero it's a serological test, the HIV antibody test. You're putting human blood with so-called HIV proteins and you're seeing if there's a response. And I said, well, it either is plus or negative. It's either plus, plus or minus, positive or negative. Why do you need to know whether they're gay, bisexual, drug user, black African? Those are the risk groups or whatever. And the technician, she said to me, because she said, because there's borderline, because it's a spectrophotometry, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's basically the reading, the machine reads the light intensity as the interaction of the protein and the blood goes forward. As that reaction unfolds chemically, it's a light, it's a surrogate. The light, the light reading is what's measured. And she said, people light up positive for all sorts of reasons, she said, biochemical reasons. And we need to know if it's a true positive or or a false positive. And the best way of doing that is the epidemiological risk group that patient is in. And 
I'm saying so you could have a positive reading that's a true positive or a false positive depending on the risk group and she said yes because it's more likely to be a true positive if they're in one of the risk groups than not so that was saying to me that this is all based on probability theory and when I looked at the the algorithm, the, the government algorithm for HIV testing, it actually said in the 1992 algorithm that in, in the same reading, the same spectrophotometry reading, in one group is a negative, can be reported as a negative. If it's in a high-risk group, it can't be reported. If it's a negative, in a in a, a low risk group it's a true negative and can be reported to the patient as negative but if it's a negative in a high risk group it's got to be repeated it can't be read as a negative so there you have perception don't you per mm. the perception of the risk group guides the interpretation of the result i remember reading that at the time when i was doing my phd i was collecting data interviewing patients and I thought, that's interesting. So this isn't a material thing. This is perceptual. This is based on interpretive interpretation. And it was just like a, a penny dropping for me. And I went and read a lot. I started looking at the HIV antibody test in a great deal of depth. And I had a lot of trouble with my supervision team because they weren't medical. They were, one was an anthropologist and the other was a social scientist, historian. And they weren't really keen on me pursuing this. And um, I remember having quite a bit of a ding-dong with my supervisor at the time and saying, I'm going to pursue this. So this thesis is going to be around public understanding of science. It's going to be around these whole caveats in the testing oh no 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 that wasn't really popular i wanted it really to be more abstract more around dissidence and dissident thinking but that's fine it was my phd i was funding it nobody else was and i guided it that way and that's how it ended up and that for me was the genesis of this whole debate around the virus and I started looking at Peter Duesberg's work and Peter Duesberg didn't have much to say about the HIV test, which is what I was focusing on. So I came upon this group in Western Australia led by this biophysicist, Eleni Papadopoulos Eliopoulos. They were called the Perth group. They called themselves the Perth group because they were based at the Royal Perth Hospital in Western Australia. And they were critiquing the whole of the HIV antibody test. And they were arguing based on huge amounts of literature that they're referencing that these so-called antibodies and so-called HIV proteins were suspect and that there was the HIV proteins weren't in origin viral. It wasn't proven that they were viral. And for me, this is really interesting because if the test was wrong and the provenance of those pro proteins wasn't viral, and this test was all based on perception and probability, then the epidemiology is wrong because the test is based, the HIV test is based on epidemiological risk groups. 
And the epidemiological risk groups are based on basically probability and projection, projection of ideas that these people's illnesses are based on their sexual orientation. And to me, that was very suspect uh, as a gay man. I thought, well, I, your, your sexual orientation isn't intrinsically pathological. And that's what the epidemiologists are saying. It intrinsically leads you to infection by having anal sex or whatever sex as a gay man. And this seemed really bizarre to me. It's crazy. And there we have the HIV test in front of my eyes. I was seeing it for what it was, which is based on perception and notions and social concepts, not material scientific fact. It was based on presumption, presumption of infection. And I was thinking, oh God, well, this is interesting. This is the end of working in this field because um, I, I couldn't really see myself going back into clinical work after this because, you know, I'd be saying to people, don't bother testing. Uh, I certainly don't have those drugs because it is based on this idea that these proteins are viral. And if that hasn't been proven, and I could see through the Perth group's work, they went through all the experiments that Gallo and Montanier did. They went through them like with a fine tooth comb and they deconstructed all those experiments. And they demonstrated to me in the 1990s that whatever the phenomenon was, it wasn't viral. It hadn't been proven to be viral. And what caused this phenomena this so-called budding from cells, this so-called expression of so-called HIV, was based on oxidative stress of those cells, was based on cellular oxidative stress. And Papadopoulos Eliopoulos had proven this. She'd rebutted the HIV AIDS theory completely, utterly, in paper after paper, and it just didn't impact in the mainstream for all sorts of reasons that we know today with COVID that um, the viral critique, the antiviral critique hasn't taken hold. And even people that are questioning the, the illness, the severity of the illness, like my Eden, they're not seen as credible. So it's exactly the same in the 1980s and 90s with Perth group. So for me, this was by the end of the 90s, I was about, I was coming to finishing my PhD research. And like a lot of PhDs, my PhD supervisor always said to me, Kevin, the best PhDs change your thinking. You know, uh, they change how you see something. They ch change how other people see it. And he said, perhaps for you, it's done that, but it hasn't done it for me. <laughs> because he said, you know, you've engaged with areas of science as a social scientist. Um, probably non-objectively it's changed your thinking in a way perhaps it shouldn't have um but there we go i think for me by the year 2000 when i came to submit i changed my direction i explained what i'd seen in the last 15 years with hiv in my clinical work i was able to critique the basic science not just the terminal care model that i had problems with 
but I came to see the science as fundamentally flawed or the direction in the science that the mainstream had taken as flawed. And I came away from it and I realized that, um, that it was wrong. I thought it was wrong and I still do. And, and that was a very, very lonely place in the early 2000s because there were very few AIDS distance then. There was Peter Duesberg, there was the Perth group, and there's the people around them and the scientists around them and the patient groups around them. But there were very few, you know? It was very, very sort of um, fringe, that's the word. We were on the fringe. So I moved into the mainstream with the rest of my research work and teaching in universities and I worked in and 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 had a career in in higher education in in healthcare education and training and i worked in integrated faculties of medicine and nursing and in faculties and departments of nursing around other areas i did other research to do with healthcare and my hiv research stayed in that direction it stayed in the distant area it it, it was in that area that stayed and i hadn't changed anything about my ideas from 2000 onwards and nothing i mean this is why by 2020 i knew that the pcr was a fraudulent diagnostic tool it didn't diagnose anything and all it was is a manufacturing methodology to to amplify what people think of bits of genetic material it's not a diagnostic. And that's why um, I, I got a PhD on that basis because page 71, 72 of my PhD was the HIV PCR. And I quoted all the data sheets from the manufacturers saying it is not a diagnostic. How could I never speak out about it if I'd gained the PhD on that basis? Uh, it's crazy to think that one couldn't speak out about this. If I could just cut back to the early 2000s, when you've done your HIV research and come to conclusions about that, I assume at that point you still thought measles was caused by a virus and polio were being caused by a virus. And is there a further transition in your thought over the years following that to become more cynical? After I remember thinking about this and looking at the measles issue and thinking the same arguments that the Perth group used with HIV actually can be used to uncouple these other concepts, these other viral concepts. And do you remember in the beginning, in the early 2000s, we'd just come through the MMR issue, the measles, mumps and rubella. And I remember, because um, I was working, I'd linked with Continuum magazine, I'd met a filmmaker called Joan Shenton, who was an AIDS distant, had done loads of films debunking AIDS and the HIV model of AIDS and she took me to a meeting of parents of vaccine damaged children and it's quite profound experience just like my thesis really because I came out of that meeting thinking it isn't just HIV that's all wrong the whole damn thing's wrong this is 2002 I was thinking I've just been in a meeting with over 60 parents of who are claiming that the MMR damaged their children. All of them had very similar accounts when they spoke. Not all the 60 spoke, but a lot did. They had very similar accounts 
of a sudden onset of uh, illness in their child within hours or, or less of being injected or days, all being discounted by mainstream health services, all written off as neurotic parents or this would have happened anyway, the autism would have been there anyway. It was totally discounted, you know. And I remember coming out of that meeting thinking, there's something wrong with the whole of biomedicine that I'm working in, you know? How could I just go to a meeting like that and hear these accounts that are very authentic to me as a social scientist? Because you listen to people's accounts and you triangulate between the different ones, the different accounts, and the similarities. These people hadn't met, the, they hadn't met themselves, each other, do you know what I mean? They'd met themselves that day. They'd met each other that day. They didn't know each other. So they hadn't, they hadn't rehearsed their accounts together, you know? They hadn't collaborated to, to conspire to, 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 to build these accounts. They were all authentic. And I came out of that thinking, what, you know, I was in this senior lecture job. And I was thinking, well, wh what am I going to do? You know, where am I going to go health research-wise? So I think I was looking at critiquing other viral models. I didn't really want to go near too much of it because I knew there was something wrong with it. And I went towards areas like psychiatry. I did some work around um, the construction of diagnoses in psychiatry with the danger uh, with personality disorder. I did a paper on personality disorder in the mid 2000s where the government, the British government, the Department of Health were creating a category of diagnosis called dangerous and severe personality disorder. And I wrote a paper on that it was very well received got into a mainstream public health journal it was very well picked up and i did lots of conferences on it and it, it, it was taken up by other social scientists that we were saying that this is a political diagnosis this is a political push to 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 show the public that the government were taking safety as an issue, safety of the public against these dangerous psychiatric patients. But it was also a fiction that they built up around schizophrenia and uh, it, it didn't ring true. And the whole DSPD mm. category basically dissolved within a few years. And it, it didn't really um, embed in health services very much. So I had taken my experience from my research into other areas and um but you know with the viral thing uh, i was sort of questioning viruses from the early 2000s i didn't do th anything in public with that except with hiv and I, I published stuff on hiv demonstrating it hadn't been purified or isolated and that was always part of my approach to HIV. I didn't do much publicly with it, with the other viruses, which I could have, I suppose, but it did seem to me logical to do that, that if what the Perth group was saying was correct, and I'd read it as correct, I accepted it myself, then once you point the light on other areas of viral disease, you're gonna find the same flaws. And of course, this is what's happened in the 22 years since I finished my doctorate, other people have looked at it and found it wanting. They've looked at the whole concept of viral, pathogenic viral disease. You know, the idea of a pathogenic virus causing human disease as problematic. They've shown 
there's no isolation, there's no purification, and they've shown the disease category as false and as 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 as, as fraudulent. And we've had all these so-called viral epidemics that have been shown to be the swine flu and the rest of it, shown to be total fakes, you know? But you could look before the HIV era, you had the SMON phenomenon. Have you heard of that, Richard? The Samoan no, no. disease in the late 60s and early 70s in, in Japan was this quite profoundly debilitating disease, a deteriorating disease, uh, which the experts started saying was viral. And they said they found a virus underlying it. And they're about to launch a test for this. Um, so they had the disease, they implicated what they thought was a virus, they're going to do a test for it, and along came a group of scientists and proved that the disease wasn't caused by a virus, it was caused by a drug, a pharmaceutical agent that had been marketed. And there we have it. I do remember this now, it was in Virus Mania. It's a very powerful well, chapter. It's in a that, chapter yeah. in Peter Jewsberg's book. Peter Jewsberg, although he believes HIV exists, he actually wrote a book called Inventing the AIDS Virus. Because what he meant by the title there, they're inventing, they're inventing the concept of AIDS caused by virus. That's what he was saying. He was questioning whether the AIDS disease was viral. Yeah, He wasn't questioning whether the mm. virus existed. He was questioning whether it caused the disease because yes. Peter Jusberg believes that AIDS is caused by lifestyle decisions, drug use, sex, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Basically, that's what I'd call Peter. <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll cause AIDS. And um, uh, I'm being flippant there. I don't mean to be flippant, but um, but he's not an existentialist. He doesn't question the existence of viruses like the Perth group did. And but he did write this chapter in his book on SMON, and S M O N stands. It's an acronym for long. I can never remember the long name. Uh, clinical condition, di uh, medical diagnosis, and um, he proved. He, you know, he showed the history of it, and he proved that you know he, he showed that the medicine had proved this not to be viral. But also, um, Eleni Papadopoulos, the Perth group, wrote about the so-called virus in the 70s that Robert Gallo said he'd found, and it was called, it was, it was labeled H HL23V. That was the, the virus that Robert Gallo said in the 70s that he'd found. He was developing a, a test for it. He said he'd isolated it, and he's developing an ELISA test for it. And hey presto, soon after he claimed that, a few months later, it's proven that he hadn't isolated it and it wasn't a virus. So if that had gone ahead, we would have had HL23V epidemic in the 1970s, not HIV, because Robert Gallo then went on to claim that he'd isolated this thing called HIV, which the Perth group showed he hadn't. So, you know, as you look back and then look forward, you can use this approach to question and you can show that these things haven't been proven. And 
to roll the clock forward to 2020, I knew the PCR was being used, misused in February 2020 when I read the papers, I saw what was happening. I'd seen what they'd done with the, the Cormandrosten PCR. They developed this test for COVID. And then I was thinking, well, there's no, is there a virus? So I remember reading some of the papers, the academic papers showing so-called SARS-CoV-2 exists. And I thought, well, no, it, this doesn't, this, this is not right. It, they haven't proven this. And um, they haven't used the canonical biological methods to show that this thing is a, a material biological entity. And then, lo and behold, I was looking at all the, you know, by March, April, we're all in these lockdowns, weren't we? And people looking at videos and things. And I remember seeing this doctor's video, Andrew Kaufman, showing that there's no virus, there's no proven uh, um, isolation, no purification. I remember thinking, oh, he's a, well, how, how does he know this? Is he a virologist? Is he a microbiologist? He's a forensic psychiatrist. Ah, but he has a training in molecular biology, so he knows what he's talking about. Um, but, you know, you don't need an M, you don't need a degree in molecular biology to know what you're talking about. But I was looking at the backgrounds of who's saying this, you know. And there we have it. Then there was Tom Cowan, then there's all these other people uh, saying basically what I was thinking. And I'd approach the public health laboratory people, the Public Health England in April 2020, asking them for proof of isolation. I asked this in an email of Public Health England in April 2020. And they told me that they're not working with an isolated phenomenon uh, there was no, uh, uh, there was no viral material available. They were working with a computer model of the virus to develop the test, and that the the gold standard for the diagnosis wasn't viral isolation. Yeah, I've got that in an email, a set of emails from um, Public Health England from Professor Miria Zambon, who was head of the the British. COVID testing service for the government, Professor of Virology at Imperial College London and on the SAGE group in April 2020. And I emailed her directly and I got these replies and I put that data into the public domain with Christine Massey in Canada on her website. And it's still there on her website and you can see the dates of my emails that right back in April 2020, I was questioning whether they had a virus and what the tests were based on because there's no isolated virus, no purified agent, then there's no proper medical gold standard for, there's no reference standard for the diagnostic uh, at all. Yeah. There's no reference standard that's viral. It's, 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 it's basically, basically a hypothetical that they're dealing with. Well, what sold the idea that there was a virus to me? Because I was very cynical at the start because I lived through swine flu and bird flu and all the rest. But then we saw this eruption in the death mm. rate, the excess mortalities through mm. April, May and June. And I, my, in my mind, I was, well, that, well, that's it then. This time they're right. This yeah, time there really yeah. is. The yes, it looks virus. like that. It? Yeah. Read, it certainly does. And look, reading Virus Mania a year later and having it pointed out when Spain erupts, Portugal does nothing. And that, that's strange. I mean, I don't know how viruses move, but I wouldn't necessarily expect mm. that. And, and then 
having these other accounts, like they point very much to hydroxychloroquine in the studies to a degree, but also in the rollout of the drug at, at toxic doses. And then I interviewed Jackie Dubois, mm. uh, who, who you know, who really exposed a lot about midazolam. Mm. And suddenly there were these other plausible agents for the death mm. rate. But my, my interest really was to ask you, how far do you think we can account for the excess deaths by other means? Like, do you think it's going to be possible to nail yes. down and say, okay, this percentage will be, we can see the excess use of midazolam could have caused this right. in terms of numbers. In April 2020, or I think it was April, May 2020, these excess deaths. Okay, well, that's easily explained. You don't need a virus to explain that. If there is such a thing as excess deaths, and I do question the category as well, and how it's put together. But you basically have to look at what was happening that year in the British National Health Service. So from the January 2020, basically, they'd shut primary care to the public. They certainly had in London. It became more and more difficult. Certainly February, March, it was shut. People couldn't get in. People couldn't get treated. The engineering of the health service the re-engineering of the health service was happening at the same time. And you had DNR orders being put on people without their, their consent and knowledge. So people being basically left to die and weren't being given treatments that would have saved them. That happened in nursing homes and residential care facilities right across the board and also in hospitals. So you had a situation there where the system was being re-engineered around viral contagion. And this was admitted uh, on the Andrew Marr show, uh, I think in March 2020, when they had a lead a &E consultant from the UK, who I think was on the Emergency Medical Academy. She was one of the professors that headed up emergency medicine in this country and she was saying we're re-engineering the nhs reformatting it to make it safe for patients and what they were doing there richard was they were creating this strata this tiering of the nhs this uh, what we call um uh when you come into any &E, we come into contact with the nhs you are interviewed, you're assessed in relation to your condition. But what they were, they were doing was interviewing people in relation to their presenting symptoms. They were interviewing them and trying to work out, are they an example of this viral disease? So they were fitting people's symptoms into this viral model. The term we use in healthcare, it's a bit of a I don't want to talk in acronyms and, and fancy language, but it's called triage, where you assess a patient who comes, say you come into A&E department, an accident emergency department, an ER department in the NHS, with, you've got a chest pain, you've got pain in your chest, yeah? We triage you, we interview you in relation to, does this symptom you've got fit into classic coronary artery disease presentation? Are you having a myocardial infarction or not? And got to rule that out as a, you know, because that's the, that's the leading cause of death from chest pain. Yeah. So if you diagnose the chest pain as indigestion, 
you might miss somebody having a coronary and they die, yeah? Yeah? So what they were doing, they were taking this concept of triage in 2020, and they were reformatting this triage practice around viral contagion, yeah? So somebody was presenting to A&E department with the temperature. They were presuming until they rule it out that you've got COVID. If you presented to A&E department with flu symptoms, or you presented on the phone to the 111 service with flu symptoms, they presumed you had COVID from the get-go until they ruled it out, yeah? So that increased the statistics, yeah? And that went right through the whole experience of healthcare. So presuming you had it automatically, and you could see that in the billboards and the media, the government message was everybody can have it and anybody can, can transmit it. Yeah. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that yeah. triaging went right through the health service. So undoubtedly people were presumed to have it and treated as though they had something that they didn't have. People were given treatments that killed them. People were intubated and ventilated with symptoms that, that they presumed were COVID, that were other conditions, that were other pre-existing conditions. So undoubtedly, you're going to get deaths when you do that. People were presenting with asthma attacks and they're presuming it's COVID and they're intubating them. They were sedating them and intubating them. People were presenting with pulmonary emboli, clots in their lungs for all sorts of other preconditions that they had. And they're presuming that this was COVID and they're intubating them and ventilating them. And this is why you may have had, you may have had, a spike of deaths. The government knew that its lockdown process, its lockdown policy, would cause in excess of 200,000 deaths. Do you know that? There was a government document that I found for Toby Young, and he put it on his Daily Skeptic or Lockdown Skeptics in 2020, and it showed the government expecting, in a, they're anticipating that the lockdown of healthcare and society would cause at least over 140,000 deaths, maybe as many as mm -hmm. 200,000, right? So the government itself knew that, you know, take the virus out of there, its approach would kill people, the whole approach would kill people, the whole triaging, the whole re-engineering of the NHS around contagion model at point of entry, would cause deaths. It would cause, uh, it would be doctor-induced deaths, medically-induced illness. Uh, the COVID pathways, uh, the COVID pathways in the nursing homes and the care homes and the hospices all involve drugs like midazolam. They all involve drugs like midazolam. And of course, that became like, you know, the, 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 the smarty of choice the drug of choice, like the, the, what sweets do you give to your children? You know, the, 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 they became overused. These drugs were overused because people written off, Richard, people were written off. Mm -hmm. You had the nice frailty scores that came out in April, 2020. 
and Kate Shamarani's talked a lot about those. She's absolutely right, totally right what she said about those. They were used as a cutoff to deny people access to intensive care and to deny people life-saving treatments, right? People were just coded not for resuscitation and that was it, you know, because the war mentality means you ration, you know? When you're, ca when you're parachuted onto a, a battlefield as a medic, you quickly triage who you can save and who you can't, yeah? And you go towards mm -hmm. the ones you save and you do that first, yeah? If the others are still alive afterwards, you might help them, but they're not to be the first, you know, they're not to be the focus. And that's exactly what the government did. It created this battle um, mentality, the war on COVID. And these are the people you save, and this is how you do it, through intensive care, through intubation, the rest you leave, yeah? And, and, the, okay. and the ones that they went towards to help, they coded them as COVID. There was a lot of presumptive diagnoses. I know this because I talked to consultants I talked to one medical consultant ran an A&E department in 2020 would call me all the time. I knew exactly what they were doing. They were presuming people had this, who had other conditions, who were presenting with other respiratory conditions. Everything was COVID until proved otherwise. And you treated it as COVID. So undoubtedly that's going to kill people. And that, Richard, is how you explain those numbers that people, you know, the spike in the deaths or whatever, you don't have to look very far. It's there in front of your eyes. The fraudulent category of COVID and the fraudulent way people were treated, the dangerous way people were treated in 2020, that will create the deaths. You don't have to look very far. It's iatrogenic. It's iatrogenic. That's a Greek word for doctor-induced death, doctor-induced illness. There must have been a return to a more normal practice around the June time then, at some point during the lockdown, when we see those deaths fall yes, away. Yes, there was. Be ex exactly, because they realised in 2020 the ventilator approach was wrong. What they were doing, you see, was they reformatted the health services in every country around the contagion fear. So everything was viral triage. They're triaging you for viral disease, whether you phoned up your GP, you phoned up A&E, or you went to A&E, or you phoned up 111. You're being triaged for COVID all the way through, even if you didn't think you were, you were. And what they were doing there was they're creating this massive workload that ended up in hospital where people with respiratory conditions were being intubated and ventilated because they thought that is the only way they could control the contagion in hospital, yeah, the risk of transmission, by closed circuit ventilation. They couldn't put people on an oxygen mask or uh, a nebulizer because they thought they'd be spreading the disease by breathing out into the atmosphere. That's what they were thinking. So they're using these very, very high-tech, dangerous um, approaches to control infection. That's what they thought they were doing. Now I think they pull back from all that because it's unsustainable. So was there a return to these kind of policies, maybe not with the ventilators, but a return to some kind of more aggressive policy in the winter of 2020 then when we see the death rate yeah, spike again? Yeah, and they'll go back to that approach again if they get another one. You know, the, the, you know, 
that they reformatted the whole of health services around viral contagion. And it ends up with how do you control viral contagion in a hospital environment? The only way they think they can control this is through ventilation, intubation. And they're not even questioning that approach. You know, they're not even questioning whether there's a virus to begin with, which is where I am. I, you know, the whole thing is an iatrogenic nightmare. They've built a whole tier approach of different tiers, tiered approach to this whole phenomenon of there being a virus that ends in intensive care. And that kills people if you don't need it. You put somebody on CPAP with um, pneumonia emboli and um, in, in, inflamed lungs, a good chance you're going to blow a hole in their lungs. If you put them on a ventilator like that, you're going to blow their lungs as well. So best to keep them on an oxygen mask or CPAP on, on low volume if you can. But if you put them on a, a you intubate them, put them on a ventilator, you've got to be very careful with the flow rates. Otherwise, you're going to have pneumothorax, you're going to have uh, infected um, lung fields, you're going to have empyema. It's iatrogenic. So many people mm. gave me information, you know, Richard. So many people. They wouldn't come out in public. They knew. I mean, I, I know a lot of nurse practitioners who work in who work in A and E departments, and certainly during COVID, and they would feed me information, you know, and I know what I'm saying mm. is right. I mean, uh, one guy, a friend of mine I worked with years ago, he he's a nurse practitioner, big A and E department in London. He said, um, and he diagnosed, he um, prescribes, so he pres he's a prescriber. And he was saying to me, Kevin, they've got these protocols for COVID. You should see them. He said, the protocols, he said, we've just had this woman in, she walked in, can talk normally, and they've told her she's got to be intubated. She's got to be sedated and ventilated. He said she's just she's just got a chest cough and she's got a bit of asthma. She's been treated for asthma before. So she's gone next door on her mobile phone to speak to her husband because she's got to tell him she's got to be intubated. And I said, she's walked next door and they're saying she needs to be intubated. Because if you can walk and talk, you don't need to be intubated. You only intubate people who are collapsed on the floor. Yeah. I mean, it's just, this yeah. is just, and I said to my friend, you know, this is wrong. He said, yes, yes. I can't do anything. The doctors have got this protocol and they're just adhering to it. I said, where is she now? Go and get her. He, do you know what he said to me? He said, it's too late, Kevin. She's in intensive care on a ventilator sedated. And I said, you're going to kill her. Wow. He said, I know, I know. He said, I said all this to the registrar, but they just won't take it. You know, so people walking in off the street with so-called COVID symptoms being intubated and ventilated because there's a pandemic, you see, they've been brainwashed. Now, if my voice is going up a bit, it's because I can see people being misguided here, thinking they're doing the right thing and they're actually killing people. The senior medical consultant in a London ADPE and A&E department worked with me previously, contacts me in April 2020 and says the same thing. Sends me information, whatsapps me the x-rays of five people that he's treated. He's had to intubate 
Why do you have to intubate them? Because everybody around me is telling me I have to. It's the protocol. Do you see, uh, Richard, what's wrong there? Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, totally, yeah. And, it's, yeah. and I said, well, what does your clinical acumen tell you? He said, put an oxygen mask on and leave them, see how they do. And I said, well, where are they now? <laughs> They're in ice. Their intensive care on a ventilator. I said, well, go up there and pull it out. Pull the pull them off it. He said, I can't do that. I said, yes, you can. You're a consultant. You're the most senior doctor in A&E, and you let other people push you into doing this. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> he said, you're right. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, you know more about the x-rays than I do. And I said, how do I know that? I'm not a medical consultant. He said, you've seen it all before with AIDS. You know, the x-rays look very much like the, the x-rays the AIDS patients had in the 80s, the chest x-rays. Hyler shadowing. Hyler shadowing is a radiological finding of diffuse inflammation in the lungs, yeah? Could be anything. And they said it was mm -hmm. characteristic of pneumocystis pneumonia. But now they've said that that's characteristic of COVID pneumonia. Do you see? It's really interesting what's happened. Just like uh, in AIDS, the AIDS patients were brought in to believing in the virus and to campaign for more drugs. In the, in the 80s and 90s, groups like ACT UP in America and across the world were colonized by the pharmaceutical industry, were paid money to campaign for more drugs, faster track drugs, less regulation, quicker, quicker licensing. And this is exactly what's happening now. I see these groups campaigning around hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and other drugs. Uh, they've just gone past the basic science. They've just accepted it. And they're colonized by these pharmaceutical interests that are pushing more drugs on people. Uh, how can people not see this and learn from history? What was never sorted out with HIV was the existence of the virus. And it only came out later when Montagnier was interviewed, when he admitted on tape that they hadn't purified the virus. It wasn't purified. They even interviewed his electron microscopist to say that he looked for hours and days for something that was viral. It was so hard to find. I mean, this is really important stuff. So, you know, this, this whole COVID diagnosis is just a chimera that's been created. And who is benefiting from this? Not the patient, no. Not the health service, not the treasury, absolutely. This country is broke now because of this. It's, it's actually in debt because of this COVID fraud and the cost of it and the, all that's gone with it socially, the furloughs, the free money, uh, nothing's free in this world. You pay dearly for everything. And we're paying for it now through a crashing economy. And, and my God, when Sunak and, and, um, and Boris Johnson said two years ago, they do anything, nothing's too much for this. They opened the treasury's doors and all our money's gone into this. And now the country's broke.
People need to think of this. People who sat at home on the furloughs and who are never so well off, they need to take responsibility for this because they fed out of the same pot. They fed out of the same pot as, as the pharmaceutical industry and the test industry and the industry that made all the PPE. You know, this is wrong, absolutely wrong. We need to go back two years take COVID off the list, forget about it, put it all to bed, destroy it, actually, burn it, burn it out of our imaginary, burn it out of the diagnostic textbooks, stop it and stop it now, because this is, this is the end result of the last 25 years from HIV, one fake epidemic after the next. How many more do we need to go through before people realize we're caught in this business model of creating an epidemic from pre-existing disease, creating fake tests to validate it, and then creating fake pharmaceuticals to treat it? Absolutely wrong. This has got to stop.